Grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus Christ. If you are a guest or a curious skeptic with us, we're glad that you're here today. We hope that God speaks to you. Guys, open your copy of God's Word uh, to Genesis 44. Genesis 44. Uh, so here's where we, are, where, where we are in the story. We've reached the uh, high point of tension uh, between Joseph and his estranged brothers. Remember, they still don't know who he is. Um, just when they think that everything's going well, just when they think that they've, they got their brother back and they're going home, just when they think they're finally leaving Egypt, never to have to go back, Joseph brings them back in. He's like a godfather, you know? He sucks them back in one more time. Um, and so that's where we are. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Genesis 44, 1 through 34. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told them. As soon as the morning was light, and the men, went, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone... They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent." Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup has been found shall be my servant." But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in, in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, 
Bring him down to me that I may set eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And as we pray, I'd like to lead us in a prayer. So I'll pray, and you guys pray. Repeat it, okay? Dear Jesus, speak to my heart. Change what I want. May I want Jesus the most. Amen. Amen. Are you familiar with the phrase, you better lawyer up? It's a phrase that strikes fear into the hearer of that phrase, does it not? It, it indicates, what it tells us is that someone is accusing you of either wrongdoing or out and out a crime, and very soon you're going to be dragged into a courtroom and you're going to be tried before a judge whether you like it or not. That's what that phrase indicates. So you better get professional, a professional legal advocate. Don't try to defend yourself. This is not the time to YouTube intro to law classes and, you know, try to give it your best shot. No, you need someone that can effectively defend you, intercede for you. You better lawyer up. Well, that's kind of what's happening in this scene right here. Uh, this is a courtroom scene with Joseph kind of sitting as the judge uh, he's all-powerful. He, you know, he knows all things. He even claims that he can practice divination, so he knows all things. Uh, he even knows the secret things in the lives of these brothers. Remember, they don't know who he is. He knows things about them that no one would know. And so in that sense, he's, he's kind of like God in that way. And notice how Judah interprets this entire situation when he finds this out. Even though they are innocent concerning the, the specific charge of, sil of stealing the silver cup, 
Like, they didn't do that, and they know that. Even though they're innocent of that specific charge of stealing, he admits that they are all guilty of sin. Did you notice that? All of us. He includes Benjamin in that. He interprets this scenario that this is God, not Joseph, but God exacting judgment upon all of them for the past sins that have finally found them out. That's how he reads this situation, what's happening in front of him. That's very curious. You see, that verse is actually a, a key verse to how we need to understand this whole passage and this whole scene. Judah helps us. No matter how good of a life that you and I have tried to live on the earth, that life is going to come to an end one day. And usually it's sooner than we think, almost always sooner than we think, right? And on that day, we're going to face God. We're going to face a God that knows even the secret things that we haven't told anyone. He's going to know our heart. And he is perfectly holy. And on that day, we're going to all be brought into his courtroom and we're going to have to give an explanation, a defense for all the things that we did, not yesterday, but over the entire course of our life. And so here's my question I want to kind of lay at our feet to start this off. If we can all agree, I think we do, we all agree that we need an advocate before an earthly judge. Like, we would all agree, we don't YouTube law classes and go defend ourselves, right? Right. We all say, I definitely need an advocate in front of an earthly judge. Here's my question, how much more will we all need an advocate before a holy God? You want to try that yourself? No. No. Here's the good news of Genesis 44. In fact, the entire Bible, actually. We don't have to go searching for an advocate. We don't have to go looking for a defendant, a a defender. We don't. And cross our fingers and, and hope against hope that we picked a really good one. We have something better than that. We have better news than that. And it's this, God has provided. Get this, the same God who judges is a God who provides an advocate. Isn't that crazy? God provides an advocate that defends us with his love and with his life. That's a big idea today in this passage. God has provided for us an advocate that defends us with his love and with his life. And so I want to take a few minutes to show how Judah actually points beyond himself to his descendant, Jesus Christ, our advocate. So first of all, this advocate defends us with his love. He defends you and I with his love. We'll we'll go verses 30, 31, and then jump to 34. So he's giving his speech, right, His his defense. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up, in the boy's life, we talked about that, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down his gray hairs of your servant, our father, to, with sorrow to Sheol. Verse 34, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear, I fear 
to see the evil that would find my father. Now, a little fun fact about this passage. Judah makes the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. Did you know that? And so that should tip all of us off that this isn't just like a normal speech, right? Something unique and special is going on here because the author's really like highlighting that with a highlighter. It's pretty obvious that there has been an enormous change in Judah's heart. And what he, what I mean heart, I mean like what he wants the most. God has radically transformed this man on the inside. This is not the same Judah that you and I met in chapter 37, right? Barely recognized this guy. Remember back Judah from chapter 37? That Judah wanted to kill his father's favorite son because he wasn't it. Remember that? That Judah gave a speech also, little speech, short speech, but he gave a speech about selling Joseph into slavery and getting paid for it, right? 20 pieces of silver. I mean, we're going to do something to him. Let's get paid. That was his speech. Remember that? That Judah also did not care about how his actions would impact their father Jacob. As a matter of fact, he was at peace knowing that his father was crying. That Judah had a hard heart, and he did not love his father, and he did not love his father's favored son. But now, now we see here, that Judah cannot even imagine leaving his stepbrother in Egypt. Why? Because that would kill his father. And he can't have that on his conscience. He can't even imagine that idea, doing that. Judah, it's what's interesting to me, Judah actually seems to accept that his father has a favorite son and he's not it. Did you notice that? He brings it up. He, he, like, he seems like he's made peace with that. That's who my dad is, and I love him anyway. And yet he gives this long defense because he's gen he genuinely loves Benjamin, and he genuinely loves Jacob now. I mean, remember, Joseph has clearly stated Judah can leave Benjamin and walk out that door a free man, no strings attached. He can go. He doesn't have to stay and do this, right? In fact, they can all go. And so this is evidence here that Judah is not making this defense so that he might receive mercy, but so that Benjamin, and by extension his father, might receive mercy. It's almost, it's almost as if he's been born again. Right? It is his genuine love for them that makes him stay. It is his genuine love for them that makes Judah defend them so boldly and intercede so boldly on their behalf, not on his own behalf. True love is not something that we see very often. It's love that forgoes its own preference. It's love that gives up its own um, privilege and it sets the good of another ahead of self. True love. True love. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It just sounds corny, doesn't it, to our ears to hear that? True love. 
in the 1990s, that was, that was the height of this new movie genre called, genre called the romantic comedy. I really came to the forefront. Rom-coms. Sleepless in Seattle, When Harry Met Sally, You've Got Mail. And, and basically the plot line was this, two lonely, incomplete people from different parts of the world or different sides of the track, they finally find true love and they live happily ever after together. And they're awesome. But you know what? This is what, something that I've noticed. The formula has changed in romantic comedies that Hollywood is putting out now. Have you noticed this? I have. The, the stories that I just mentioned there is some sacrifice that is made in order to be with the one that you love, that other person. There's some barrier that the protagonist has to like um, deal with, some barrier that they have to scale and be willing to cross. And also, the goal is to be in a committed relationship. Usually marriage, not always, but like this, this long-term relationship. Today's rom-coms, they're not about finding true love forever. They're about finding the ultimate hookup until the next breakup. And isn't that funny? And, like, that's, that's the formula. It's changed. And I find this very interesting because it seems that even a genre that is devoted to telling stories about finding true love no longer seems to know what true love is. We have lost the plot when it comes to love. When was the last time that someone loved you sacrificially like Judah loves his brother and his father? You know, they said, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter the awful things that you said. It doesn't matter the horrible things that you did. And it doesn't even really matter that you were wrong. I love you anyway. And I am going to make sure that you live that you thrive, even if it costs me my health, even if it costs me my life. I think we've all seen like hints of that, samples of that, I, but I know for me, only one person has loved me like that, and that is Jesus, my advocate. You see, none of us comes before God completely innocent. We may not be guilty of a very specific, you know, wrongdoing, but none of us comes into his room, into his courtroom, innocent and guilt-free. In fact, this is one of the bedrock teachings of Christianity. Humans have dignity and we have depravity, both. We are not morally superior to anyone else in the room. Bedrock teaching. We all are guilty before God. And here's, here's, you know what we deserve? Here's what we deserve. We deserve a state-appointed defender who is dispassionately involved in the outcome of our case. One who has a long track record of plea bargaining instead of taking it to court and taking it to trial. That's what we deserve. But you know what God has given us? He has given us better than we deserve. God has given us and he has seen that our greatest need is to be brought back to him and he has assigned to us the best legal counsel. He has uh, given to us the best advocate possible, Jesus Christ. 
And here's why Jesus is the best advocate that we could possibly have. And it's going to sound corny, but it's true. Here's why he's the best advocate. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves sinners. Judah had to be born again in order to actually genuinely, sincerely from the heart love his brother. He had to be born again for that to take place. And as bold as his love is for Benjamin, he, we still know and they still know like he didn't always love his brother. I mean, it's hard to love a favored son and a biased father, amen? That's tough. But here's the deal. God has always loved his people. God has always loved you and I. He has showed his love by giving us an advocate through Jesus Christ. And he's an advocate that didn't have to change his mind to love us. He didn't have to work his way up to loving us sacrificially. No, Christ has truly loved us from the very beginning, from the very start. This is what makes Jesus so unique. John explained it to us like this. The apostle John in 1 John 4 says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. This is love. He's going to define it. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, get this, as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. In fact, look what Jesus says. He's making this prayer, and he's praying. This passage, he's saying this. This is why I came. This is why I came, Father. Remember why I came. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here's why he's an advocate. So that the whole world will know Love my disciples as much as you love me. And how did he, how has God loved the, the Son? Since forever. His love is trustworthy. His love is, reli is reliable because he decided to love us in this way from the very beginning of time. He didn't have to warm up to it. He had to work himself into it. He just I choose to love you. And so we can trust Jesus when our sins accuse us before God. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean to trust Jesus? It means this. It means that we admit our guilt fearlessly. That's what it means. We admit our guilt fearlessly instead of wearing ourselves out trying to make a great defense and explain it away, and minimize the impact, and all that stuff that we do. That's what it means to trust Jesus. Yes, we may suffer earthly punishments for our sins. We may have consequences, but we will never suffer, suffer eternal punishment. That's not, that's not for us, because Jesus, our advocate, loves us, and he has loved us from the very, very beginning. His sacrificial love defends us. And not only does his love defend us, but this advocate defends us with his life. 
defenses with his life. We'll look at verse uh, 32 and 33. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame. I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. And so at the end of the speech, Judah states that he's made a promise to his father to be a pledge for Benjamin's own safety. And Judah has guaranteed to get Benjamin back to Jacob if he doesn't. He's willing to bear the blame forever. And no one's put him up to this, right? He wants to do this. And so what does he do? He proposes this counteroffer. This is bold. He proposes this counteroffer. It's an attempt to get Benjamin back home safely to dad like he promised that he would. And here's the counteroffer. Let me stand in his place and let me bear his punishment so that he and my father might live. I'll sum it up. Here's the the counteroffer. My life for his life. My life for his life. Judah is willing to do here, get this, what he was unwilling to do all those years before when he was faced with the exact same situation, remember? To save his younger brother from death by taking his place, by saying, I'll go in the cistern. My life for his life. So look, we know that this is not a ruse. This is not some like fake, humble gesture. Like, you know, take my life, but I hope you don't take me up on that. No, he means this. This is legit. Judah truly cannot bear the thought of returning home to his father without Benjamin because his father would die. And he doesn't want that. His love is so great that he would rather die than his father or Benjamin. And this substitution is actually a a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do many years later. Not for one man, but for all his people. So here's the thing. Even though you and I are guilty of sins against God every day, here's why Jesus can plead our acquittal. He has taken our punishment. He has taken our place. He has taken our punishment. And get this, Jesus never asked the Father to just like overlook our sin. That wasn't his defense. Hey, can you just kind of give him a pass? You know, they, they, didn't get, they only got four hours of sleep last night, Father. You know, like, no, that's not what he's doing. Can you let that one slide? You know, they went to church a lot. That's not his defense. Rather, Jesus asked, much like Judah, I'll bear the blame. I'll bear the blame. Don't overlook it. Punish it. Punish me. Punish me for it. On the cross, Jesus took the guilt that was ours, and he suffered the punishment that we should have suffered. In his humanity, he was cut off from the Father's love, right? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken, not father, father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And why was he cut off from the Father's love? So that you and I, who are sinful, will never be cut off from the Father's love. We don't have to worry about that. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Ain't he great? Here's what makes Christ's substitution greater than Judah's or our mom or our dad or anyone else that might love us. This is what puts him in an entirely different class all by himself. Jesus was and is totally innocent of any wrongdoing. He's the last person that deserves to have that happen to him. I mean, you remember, even though Judah was willing to substitute his life for Benjamin, he was, in a sense, guilty, right? He was. He said so. Anything that happened to him, he kind of deserved. And he knew that. He did deserve to bear some of the blame. He is part of the reason why they're in that situation in the first place, that he knows that and he admits that. So he'd kind of be atoning for his own sin. But Jesus, and Jesus, he was totally innocent of any sin. No sins against God, and yet he traded places with us who are guilty. And that puts him in a class all by himself. That's why he's got the credentials that no one else has. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. That's what makes Jesus' substitution so unique and one of a kind and over the top in a class by himself. He traded his innocent life for our guilty life so that we might live in righteousness now and forevermore. Who does that? Who does that? Sinful people sometimes will give their life for other sinful people. Yes? Yes. But who does this? Only a loving God. Only a loving God does this. Look at Romans 5, 7 and 8. It says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps a a good person. That means a really good person. Right? One would dare to die. But God showed his love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ, the innocent one, Christ died for us. When our conscience accuses us of sin, you and I have pretty much two choices to find peace. Choice one, we can burn calories ignoring or trying to muzzle our conscience. Right? Just get busy, get drunk, get whatever. I'm going to muzzle it because it's bothering me. You can burn a lot of calories trying to do that. And by the way, that is really exhausting if you've tried to do that. I have. And at the end, it's futile. Choice two, we can agree with our conscience. We can agree with our conscience that we are guilty and we can rest in the work that Jesus has done to defend us. And that's where I'm going to put my trust now. We can say, yes, I am guilty of murderous thoughts right now whenever I see their face. I am guilty of selfish 
behavior. I think of me first and everyone else last. I am bitter. I do have prejudiced thoughts. And Jesus has said, I will bear their blame for that. I will take their punishment. Take my life for their life, and that's where I'm going to rest. Brothers and sisters, when you sin, when, when you are guilty of dysfunctional living, don't try to defend yourself to God. It's exhausting. It's tiring. It's like YouTubing intro to law classes, right? There's something better. There's someone better. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus and no one else. He will defend you with his love and he will defend you with his own life. And that's the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Wonderful Jesus, we thank you for being our great defender, our advocate who is always and even right this second at the right hand of the Father making intercession on our behalf. Thank you that your blood doesn't wear out. The atonement doesn't need to be touched up or any of that. It's as potent as ever. So, Father God, I pray that you would help us confess when we're guilty and run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He's our great defender. He loves us, and he's given our li- his life for us. And, Lord, I just pray that this would sink down into our hearts now today and that we would share this with someone else that needs to hear this. It's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.